Hey everyone. Hello. Hey everyone. Welcome to Fox Lecture Theatre. Thank you so much for coming along. I hope you know a little bit about what you've come along to, but basically this is the first talk of a series of talks that's going to happen over the next two weeks, run by the Christian Union. Basically these talks are about how Christianity is more relevant than you think um, today. And we've got a few academics coming in to discuss how Christianity fits into today's world, thinking through topics like history today, um, science, which we'll do tomorrow, identity, freedom, justice. Um, yeah, so I hope that you're interested not just to listen, but to think deeply and discuss and engage with the people that are around you and with these topics. So we're going to be hearing today from Rory Shiner uh, on the history motto. So you may have heard it said, um, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. It's a popular view in our culture that if we want us, like us as a society to progress, um, we should remove religion. And so in response to this, Rory is going to be exploring whether historical progress means Christianity should die. Uh, there will be time at the end for questions. So, yeah, if you have uh, any things that come up while we're already speaking that you want to push back on, um, just make sure you take a note and we can uh, discuss those afterwards. So now I'd like to invite Rory up um, and so we can get to know him. So Rory studied English and archaeology here at UWA. Yes. yes, lovely, and completed his PhD in Australian church history. Yes. Awesome. So what do you do for a job, Rory? And do you have a side hustle? Uh, so my, my job is a, so I'm a pastor at a church called Providence Church in, uh, here in Perth. Uh, we meet in, we haven't got a property, so we kind of, we just move around and like, we're like a kind of the Visigoths, we just kind of take over other lovely, properties lovely. on the weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's, that's my day job. Married to Susan, we've got four boys. Um, and yeah, I've got this kind of side interest in, in history, which I really <laughs> Awesome, like. awesome. Yeah. And so what do you do? Do you write with that? What do you do with the history stuff? Yeah, so I did, I did do the thesis that you mentioned oh, yeah, a little while ago, yeah. and then I'm trying to turn that into, into a book, and I'm um, a member of a little um, church historians association, cool. and we kind of, um, we're little have-a-go heroes on um, Australian <laughs> yeah. church history. Awesome, yeah. awesome. And so, have you always lived in Perth, Australia? What's, what's your background? So, I was born in Albany. Anyone representing for Albany? Yes. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> so, Albany, zero to ten. Papua New Guinea, anyone representing for Papua New Guinea? Uh, so Papua New Guinea after that, and then um, Perth for most of high school. So I went to Shenton College oh, when, back when it was called. Anyone representing for Shenton College? There we yes, are. Excellent. Lovely, well, lovely. I've got to say, given my age, it used to be called Hollywood High School. Hollywood. And, uh, yeah. Oh, right. lovely. Shenton, that's right. So. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And so is there anything you would change about Perth? Like, why do you stay here? Or do you like it? Oh, I do think, uh, I do think there's this thing in Perth where... There's all these things that just get scaled down ridiculously. So the bell tower was supposed to be like three times the size. And, uh, there was talk about having a zip line from Kings Park to uh, uh, the um, Elizabeth Key, yeah. which I think would be awesome. Yeah. And what happened to that? Never so think, happened. We've got to at least do something where we have a big crazy idea and pull it off mm. rather than keep scaling these things back to manageable true, true, sizes. True. Yeah. <laughs> um, so why have you chosen to speak on this topic today? Uh, I think, I, I mean, I really like and I'm interested in, in history and uh, I, I, I find in my own kind of life and thinking I tend to try to solve problems historically, thinking, you know, how did we end up where we are here and stuff mm. like that. So I think that's yeah. a kind of a frame of 
uh, frame of thinking. And particularly in the research that you were uh, alluding to, I became really interested in the history of secularisation um, in Australia. And I discovered as I was researching, by accident, that wasn't my topic at all, but discovered yeah. by accident that the story I had in my head, which I think most of us have in our heads, is, is like almost completely wrong. Yeah. And um, so that, that got me really interested in the topic. Yeah, yeah, awesome, awesome. So I'll just hand over to you and we'll talk afterwards. Excellent, thank you. Well, thanks very much. Great to be with you today. Really excited to be back at UWA, which, is, as, uh, as, as was said, is where I studied and I was involved uh, in this uh, group when I was here way back in the 1990s, uh, where there was kind of, you know, Nirvana were blaring through the speaker system and you're allowed to smoke on campus and, uh, and all that kind of thing. It's a different world, but really good to be back uh, amongst you and to be thinking about this topic that I think is a really vital topic and a really, a really interesting one. Uh, so at some stage in history... Uh, there was a funeral at which the last active believer in the god Thor was buried by the children that no longer bared her faith. Uh, that just must have happened, right? Uh, because if, if it, as is the case, if there was a world where once in Nordic society everyone believed in Thor and now basically no one uh, does in any functional way, that funeral must have happened. There must have been a point at which the last... Uh, believer in Thor was buried by the children that no longer bared her faith. But history gives us no record of that momentous event. Uh, so I, I wonder if it's like, you know, the last time you rode on your dad's shoulders or the last time you played Chases. You didn't know it was the last time and so that momentous moment was unrecognised. I think it was probably the same with the last believer in Thor. That as uh, he or she was buried, no one thought to mark that extraordinary occasion uh, because no one knew they were in the middle of a moment in history. And I wanted to ask uh, the question, given that we've got a bit of time to think ahead uh, of it, how should we mark the burial of the last Christian in Australia? Uh, what will it mean? Uh, what would it mean as the children of the last person to actively believe in the Christian God? bury uh, the children who no longer believe, bury the person that did. What will that moment mean? What will its significance uh, be? What would we have lost? What would be buried uh, as we come to that funeral? Damien Thompson, in an article in The Spectator in 2017, uh, calculated that based on current projections in the UK, the last British Christian will be buried in 2067. Uh, so within the living... Uh, age range of most people uh, in this room. What will that moment mean? What sort of mourning or celebration uh, should happen uh, at that moment? Now, David Thompson points out uh, what I hope you, you realise, that uh, that's almost certainly not true, uh, that any sort of linear projection in history is wrong by about the 10-year mark. Uh, that's almost certainly not going to go that way. Uh, in fact, uh, in both Australia and in the UK, uh, immigration is coming from wildly more religious countries than our own, and so immigration is uh, bringing about an increase rather than a decrease in religious observance, and particularly an increase rather than decrease in Christian uh, religious observance. So that trajectory to tech 2067 almost certainly uh, won't eventuate, and if you look at demographic trends on a worldwide scale, the world is becoming more rather than less religious. So I'm not really putting that forward as an event that you can mark in your diaries, although it might be fun to mark it and see if it happened and text me uh, if it did or didn't. Maybe I'll turn out to be that person uh, and you'll be 
prepared for it. But I'm really asking that question not because I think it's literally the case, but because I want to think with you about the, the story of history and the progress of a thing that we call uh, secularisation. Uh, so secularisation, probably a, a term that's familiar to most of us, it's the term uh, that we use to describe the process by which modern societies reportedly uh, become less religious. The history of the word is interesting because the word secular, uh, maybe this is not, not as well known, is actually a word that comes from Christian theology. Um, Christian theology brought us the word secular through the Latin uh, of that term. And it was a way in Christian theological thinking of uh, distinguishing the things that are of this age from the things that are of the age to come. So secular in, in Latin means of this age or of this world as opposed to heavenly ideas or uh, ideas that will come at the end of time. And so to this day, actually, in the uh, Catholic tradition, you can talk about secular priests, which for us sounds super weird, like why would you be secular and a priest? But a secular priest is distinguished from a religious priest because a secular priest is a priest who serves this world, this age. Uh, that will be a priest that's in your local Catholic parish uh, serving in the community. As opposed to a religious priest whom you will find in a monastery uh, whose life is oriented not toward this age, but to the age to come. Uh, so as lots of things in this story, uh, Christianity ends up kicking a bit of an own goal. And uh, the idea of the secular, which is a very important part of Christian thinking about the world, uh, becomes a thing dislodged from Christian thought to describe a space in which God is actually, or at least functionally, excluded. And uh, the secularisation uh, thinking is, is, a, is, a, is a way of thinking about the world to note that the world, or at least the modern world, or at least the Western modern world, seems to be becoming less religious. Uh, it seems to be that to be religious, at least in our context, is to be on the wrong side of history um, because all the smart traffic uh, is moving away from religious beliefs. Now, uh, that measure is normally done by institutions. So the way you, you measure that, you say, Western society is leaving religion behind, becoming less religious. How do we know? Because less people go to church, less people identify as, uh, as Christians. Now, that, that's one measure, but uh, sociologists have a trifecta of measurements for religious uh, religiosity, which is belief, uh, behaviour and belonging. Uh, so the three questions sociologists want to ask of someone whether they're uh, religious or not is do they belong, that's more the institutional one, do they belong to a community, do they identify with a community or with an institution? Uh, secondly, do they believe, uh, believe certain uh, religious truth claims? And thirdly, do those beliefs result in any change in their behaviour? Is their life different in practices or morality and so on um, because of their beliefs? And, and really this is what I want to do the whole afternoon, uh, we're not going to go all afternoon, what I mean is in the time that we've got, I can see the panic on your faces, I missed the memo, uh, 30 minutes, so uh, what I want to do in our time is to really shake up the snow dome and uh, throw some confusion into the story that I carried in my head and that I think lots of us carry uh, in our heads. So institutionally, that, that does seem to be uh, the case. But if you widen the, uh, uh, if you widen the lens out a bit, uh, sociologists such as uh, Grace Davis have argued that what we've seen in the last 50 years is a decline in religious belonging, but not a decline in the other two, in behaviour or uh, belief. 
Uh, it turns out that when you drill down into uh, the beliefs of people and the behaviour of people, in spite of their increasing refusal to associate with religious institutions, uh, beliefs and behaviour derived from transcendent ideas are seemingly as high as they've ever been. Uh, to say that uh, religiosity is declining um, and religious faith is declining is a bit like saying, uh, if you measure by institutions, it's a bit like saying, uh, you know, mapping the decline of telegrams and concluding on the basis of the decline of telegrams that people aren't into communication anymore. Uh, actually, people are massively into communication, it's just that telegrams are one pretty lame measure uh, of where that's gone. Uh, the millennials, who famously are put forward as the most, uh, the most uh, non-religious generation in history, does seem to be true on the belonging criteria. So do millennials belong and go to religious institutions? No, less than uh, ever. But according to uh, Paul Robertson, has recently argued that that's the only measure on which millennials are not religious. If you drill down into belief and behaviour, they are just as likely to believe in life after death, heaven and hell, miracles and so on, as other generations. Uh, what I'm trying to do here as we, uh, as we think about this together uh, is to try to disrupt the stories that we carry in our head about where history is heading. I use the word stories, and I want to use the story, uh, the word story deliberately, but I want to say that by story I don't mean fiction as opposed to non-fiction. Uh, what I mean when I say story, I'm using that in the way the philosopher Charles Taylor uses the word story, which is to say that all human beings... Uh, just kind of by nature, want to gather the, the data and the things, the events that have happened to us, and we refuse almost instinctively to believe that history is just one damn thing after another. And in our personal lives and in our reading of history, we generate stories, not meaning true or false, but meaning events brought together in a narrative sequence that makes sense, a before and after, a once upon a time, and a heading toward a certain place, a crisis and resolution. And on a moment's reflection, I think we, we all do that with our own lives, and we do that with our, our history. And stories, I think, are powerful. Uh, Philip Pullman, the great atheist uh, uh, novelist uh, in, uh, in, in Britain, uh, says that the world is far more changed by the phrase, once upon a time, than it is by the phrase, thou shalt not. I think that's absolutely True, thou shalt not uh, is powerless in the face of once upon a time for shaping uh, the way we think and believe and behave. And what I want to say, this is the, the point I want to get to, I think we have a story, a, a powerful story in our heads about where religion and religious belief is uh, and where its future is, uh, a, a story that seems to have left religion behind, it goes a little something like this. Once upon a time, everyone in the West believed in God. Wall to wall, the whole place, cathedrals, churches, priests, the whole works, everyone was religious, and everyone was religious in a really uncomplicated way. They all genuinely, instinctively believed, belonged, and behaved according to the Christian religion. But then, hear the story language, but then something changed. 
And what changed, essentially, was the scientific revolution. In the 1600s, uh, the scientific revolution comes along and uh, proposes a different way of engaging with the world, and that way is enormously fruitful and begins to push the space of religion's explanatory powers to the margins. So as Christopher Hitchens says, uh, religion was our first and worst attempt at explaining the world, and the scientific method came up and gave us this far more powerful tool. By the time you get to the 1700s, uh, we begin to take this incredibly powerful tool and apply it beyond the realm of natural science to government and morality and society and so on with great results. Then you get to the, uh, the 1800s, and in 1859 we have the publication of yeah, Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. And with Origin of Species, which itself is the fruit of this massive scientific uh, revolution, the last nail in the coffin on the, on the Christian view of the world is struck as the Christian claim for the uniqueness of the human creature uh, crumbles in our hands. Which leads to the 20th century, which brings about modernity, by which we mean kind of free markets and, uh, and democracy and exchange and so on. And when you finally have modernity, the, the kind of the last fruit of the scientific Revolution. Well, at that point, secularisation just comes with the factory settings. Uh, to, to be modern is to be secular, uh, for religion to have less and less of a place in our lives or in our society. And so by the time we get there with the factory settings, um, out goes religious belief and in comes a secular age. That's the story that I think uh, most people carry uh, instinctively in their heads, and it's a very powerful story. I think you see that story uh, in the 2016 uh, Mark No Religion campaign. So this was a, uh, a, a group that got together, and I think it was a really in good faith, I'm not at all critical of what they were trying to do, it was uh, the Atheist Foundation and some others got together to say, hey guys, if you're going to fill out the census form, uh, we want good data, and so if you're not religious, put no religion. I think that's completely... Uh, valid thing to want to want good data. The thing I want you to notice about is the way that the uh, the sentence is phrased. Imagine if it didn't have the last two words: not religious question mark mark no religion. So if that's what it said, it would just be it's just pedestrian, right? It's just information sharing. Oh, here's a here's a fact to alert you to: if you're not religious, the thing to tick is no no religion. So it's just a public service information campaign. But it says, not religious anymore. And suddenly the sentence comes to life because it's no longer information, it's a story. It's no longer thou shalt not, it's now once upon a time. And it's a very powerful story. It's got the same rhetorical effect, I think, uh, as the Donald Trump 2016 campaign, which you remember was Make America Great Again. You see, that sentence has no power if it just says, make America great. Because if you said, Donald Trump, make America great, you just think, whatever, well, I don't care, like it's, uh, I don't know what the, what the plan is here, but the moment you add the word again, then suddenly there's a story, because now we know that America was once great. But something has happened, and America's greatness has been misplaced, or lost, or destroyed, or stolen, but now a hero has emerged, uh, in the figure of Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is going to come and claim that again. He's going to make America great again. I think the same thing is happening uh, here. Not religious any 
more is to say, once upon a time, it was war-to-war religion. Everywhere there was this fog of religion and it just made things confusing. We didn't know what we were doing. We were like burning witches and it was all crazy. Uh, but we discovered science, and out of science came the Enlightenment, out of the Enlightenment came Origin of Species, and then uh, came Modernity. And now, tons of people aren't religious anymore. And how about you? Are you still religious, or are you not religious anymore? And suddenly you're enveloped into this extraordinarily uh, powerful story uh, about where religion has gone in our society. Uh, the story, uh, Charles Taylor uh, talks about it as a subtraction story. Because the way the story works is to say there was a thing in our society which was called religion, and it has been subtracted from our society. It has been removed. So it's like there's a Dyson, very fancy Dyson vacuum cleaner, that was set to religion, and it went through our society. And just like a normal vacuum cleaner, it left all the furniture and stuff in place. And like a normal vacuum cleaner, it can't get everywhere. Like there's going to be some points under the couch where it couldn't quite reach. But essentially, religion has been vacuumed up out of our society, or at least left to the margins where no one can see it. And, crucially, the society you're left with is pretty much the society you'd expect if you vacuumed out this easily identifiable thing called religion, uh, that doesn't have an effect sort of beyond itself. So we're left with a rational, secular uh, society, just minus the cray-cray, uh, minus religion. Now, if you think about Australia for a moment, the society that we find ourselves uh, in, uh, the Australian statistics, at least at one level, uh, seem to work for that story. So uh, at Federation, that's when Australia becomes Australia, uh, 1901-96% identify as Christian. By 1954, that's down to 89%. Indeed, I wish I'd done this as a graph. It's more dramatic that way. But then in 2011, it's down to 62%. And then 2016, down to 51%. So according to McCrindle Research Group, Empirical Research Group, they, uh, they say that probably at the moment... Uh, 2019, we're at a point where less than 50% of Australians identify as Christian. So it fits perfectly with the story, right? Modernity brings around secularisation, secularisation excludes uh, religion, and away we go. Now, what, what is actually uh, happening here? Well, Christian identity is absolutely uh, declining. Uh, but what's happening, if you put it in concrete terms, a, about uh, 950,000 people uh, decided between 2011 and 2016 to no longer be Christian, right? But uh, I go to a church and uh, I'm lots of other pastors and stuff like that, and I feel like we would have noticed if 950,000 people who used to go to our churches no longer went to our churches, because like, who's going to run Sunday school and uh, cook the lanterns and do whatever churches do? Uh, but funnily enough, in that period, when 950,000 people went missing from Christianity, the churches stayed constant. And in fact, back in the 1950s, when you had from 1945 to 1963, where the identification as Christian is very gently going down, the churches boomed. So if we were talking here in 1959, we'd be talking about, man, how are we going to build more churches to fit all these people in that want to be Christian? At the same point... Uh, that the Christian identification is declining. Because you see, what actually happened here is not, it's not that 950,000 people said, uh, uh, used to love Jesus, used to just want to serve the poor and evangelize the campus and kind of 
So you, you know, you just walk up evangelism, but oh, I'm sick of it now, it's going to be an atheist. Uh, like that 1950,000, there's almost no atheism in it. What it is, is a group of people who once said to themselves, what are we, honey? I think we're Church of England or something. And, and now they've got to a point where they want to say, do you know what, just, just put no religion. Which crucially does not translate into atheism. So almost all the people in the non-religious category have supernatural or superstitious or non-empirically derived beliefs and behaviours, they just don't want to call themselves Christian. So I think what, what has actually happened in Australia uh, is something much more like this. Between 1901 and 2011, let's say, you had, you had a vaguely what Les Murray used to call a roughly Christian nation. Les Murray the poet, great phrase. A roughly Christian nation. And what Christians were, so I'm a Christian, uh, we were the annoying people who said to the culture, hey guys, let's get serious about the thing that we all say we believe. And like, that person is annoying, right? Because you're like, guys, let's get more enthusiastic. And so uh, great famous evangelist called Billy Graham came to Australia in 1959. And his message, if you listen to them, you can hear them on, on YouTube, he kept saying to people, you must be born again. Which is only said like two and a half times in the New Testament, right? But he said it every single sermon. Why? Because you had a whole culture that was like, oh, I think we're Christian. No, we're supposed to be Christian. And he says, yeah, but have you been born again? Do you really follow this thing? And what's actually happened uh, is that we've uh, become into a situation where Christian is now an identity marker outside the culture rather than an intensive form of the culture. Does that make sense? But, but inside here, secular absolutely does not mean atheism. It means all sorts of other things, but very rarely does it mean that. Uh, the Australian case is, is interesting for a couple of uh, reasons. In his recent book, uh, Stuart Piggin uh, has argued that Australia is one of the most Christianised nations on earth ever, uh, which is a very different story to the one uh, that we tell ourselves in our history. And part of the reason uh, might be this. Uh, this is from 1980, so I want to uh, acknowledge uh, how, uh, how long ago this was measured. But at 1980, 0.8% uh, of the Australian population were atheists and 1.7% were agnostic, whereas Australian historians were 48% likely to be atheist and 12% likely to be agnostic. Now, none of that is to uh, disparage the ability of historians to imaginatively think their way into another person's point of view, but those figures are wildly disproportionate. So we've basically been a country uh, that has been told its story uh, by people who overwhelmingly uh, aren't religious in their convictions. But I want to uh, poke back on that story uh, more generally. The question of uh, the, the story of, of being on the wrong side of history, uh, if you're someone who still uh, maintains religious belief. That subtraction story, as I say, is very uh, dominant, but I wonder how credible it is. That is, how, how well it accounts for the evidence uh, in front of us. And I want to raise three questions about that kind of wrong side of history. If you're still a religious story, um, I'll give you three examples. Firstly, the story relies on the idea of a golden age of faith. For that story to work, they're not religious anymore, but it's once more all religion, now people are slowly moving out. For that story to work, you have to have a golden age of faith. 
And, uh, and my question is, did that golden age of faith exist? Uh, so we think that the medieval era is the era of the golden age of uh, faith, but there's some questions as to how true that is. So, for example, uh, the Lateran Council of 1215 uh, was a council, Catholic Church council, uh, and its purpose was to encourage a greater religious commitment in Europe, right? That's what they wanted to do. And so they sent out a decree, 1215, the decree was to say that, guys, we've got to get more serious about our religion, so they mandated that good Christians should go to church, wait for it, take communion, uh, and say, confess their sins once a year. And so, that's 12.15. So my question is, what is the problem to which that is the solution? Like, how is that? They thought that would be a net rise in religiosity in Europe if people did that, which starts to raise questions about uh, what was going on beforehand. When people did go to church, their experience of church was actually uh, pretty thin. Most of the priests, uh, until the 1500s, were uneducated, couldn't actually speak Latin, and so what they would do is mumble Latin-sounding words from the front of the church. You know there's that kind of slightly racist thing where you can impersonate the sound of other people's languages? Um, Has anyone ever heard that done to English? I've heard it done... I've heard someone who doesn't speak English uh, say to me what English sounds like, and it kind of sounds like the chef from the Muppets. Like, and anyway, the the priest would kind of mutter uh, mutter up the front in Latin-sounding words, and this is a quote from a report from the 1500s, uh, which says, and I quote, members of the population jostled for pews, this is in the church, nudged their neighbours, hawked and spat, knitted, made coarse remarks, told jokes, fell asleep, and even let off guns. And one man was charged with misbehaving in church because, and I quote, because of his most loathsome farting, striking, and scoffing, which was apparently resulting in the cheering of the rest of the congregation uh, for this guy. So maybe it wasn't as pious as we think it was. The other way you work that out, actually, is the size of the church. Yeah, if you've been to Europe, and uh, the size of the church, almost none of them could fit... Uh, like even half of the village um, that was uh, that they were supposed to serve. Uh, second thing, uh, the behaviour doesn't behave in a way that the story would predict. The, the data doesn't behave in a way the story would predict. See, for example, you would think that uh, if it's a case of science increases and religion decreases, then you want you know, the Enlightenment to be a point where religion is going south. And in fact, the Enlightenment is coterminous with the great age of Christian expansion. That's the point where the Christian gospel goes out over the world. That's the point of the evangelical revivals uh, in both England and America. They're happening at the height of the uh, Enlightenment uh, rather than to the exclusion uh, of it. Uh, Or after the publication of The Origin of Species, if the story works, you would expect Origin of Species comes up and religion suffers. Actually, Christianity and Christian observance goes north and north and north right across the second half of the Victorian age. Such that uh, many historians argue that peak Christianity in England was not, you know, 1215 or 1066 or 1500, but 1901 is the point at which the most people are in church and enthusiastically in church. 50 years after the publication of The Origin of Species. 
And thirdly, there's the problem of the exceptions. The secularization thesis uh, has always acknowledged that the United States is a bit of an exception because there you've got this kind of prosperous modern, uh, modern society uh, that still is deeply religious. Uh, but then, as secularization thesis kept testing their ideas against the data, you had to start bringing in more and more exceptions, like Southeast Asia and China and Latin America and so on and so forth. And, and now people are more likely to talk about the Western European exception as the only place where the secularization thesis works. And uh, the exception, uh, which was Eurocentrically thought to be uh, exceptional, turns out to be the norm. And uh, the freak show is the one that's happening in Western European context. Uh, the other non-troubling, the other troubling kind of non-correlate uh, uh, is the idea that education must exclude uh, religious observance. So you think if the if the if the story works, then the more educated are, the less likely you are to be religious. Here's what you think: you don't know, think the most likely group in Australia are to attend church. Uh, it's in the top third of the educated. So the more educated you are, the more the more you are in the top third. The more likely you are to be an atheist, that's where atheism resides in the top third, and that's where high religious devotion coincides, which is a really strange result uh, if the secular story is true. Karl Marx has a version of secularization thesis where he uh, famously said that uh, religion is the opium of the masses. It's worth hearing that quote in context. This is what Karl Marx actually said, uh, and I quote, Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of a soulless condition. It is the opium of the people. I don't think many people know that Karl Marx thought that religion was the heart of a heartless world. It's actually a very tender passage. But what Karl Marx is saying is that religion serves a purpose, and the purpose is to... Uh, tell mythological stories to the most oppressed amongst us. And at least at this moment in our history, that doesn't correlate with the data. Does that make sense? So, home stretch. Uh, the, uh, the story that I think is much more plausible is Charles Taylor's uh, framing story. What Charles Taylor says is this, who does, uh, returns this thing, is that what has actually happened is not a subtraction story. The story is not a story of... Uh, religion and science competing for the same space and religion just has got more explanatory power uh, no, science has got more explanatory power than religion. What Charles Taylor uh, says, well there's a huge consensus amongst people uh, who think about these things is what's actually happened is through a complex journey of, in which science is part of the story but also technology and the arts um, cars, the pill culture Aspects of Christian theology, wars, economics, and architecture, modern suburban life have taken our culture on this non-linear, erratic, contingent path to a moment that he talks about as the imminent frame. So what uh, Taylor says is that we now exist in a society where we, and like in the, you know, a regular frame, a frame in a in a uh, in a um, art gallery, it's not telling you that there's nothing outside the frame, it's just saying, look here. The frame just says, guys, this, I want you to concentrate on this picture now. There may or may not be stuff on the outside, but the frame is its way of saying, this is where I want you to concentrate. 
And what Taylor says is that we have produced a society uh, where almost everything in daily life is framed imminently. It's framed in such a way that you can go about your business, you can get on a bus, you can uh, get an education, you can go to school, you can, uh, you can conduct your affairs in ways that don't have to reference any transcendent realities. Now, you can choose to be open to the transcendent and say, I think there's something beyond the frame, or you can be closed and say there's nothing beyond the frame. But this is what's happened in our culture. Not that science has out-explained religion, but that our culture has framed things imminently uh, such that we can ignore or marginalise our religious truth claims. That's what's happened, and I want to finish by saying that I think it's happened uh, uh, not entirely successfully. Because, because here, I think, mean, you've got two things. First of all, you've got a whole lot of stuff inside the imminent frame that is actually tethered to transcendent truths. So, if I can put it this way, in which laboratory did we discover universal human rights? In, what, in which forest did we discover the dignity of man? In which, uh, in which you know, laboratory test conditions did we work out that we're responsible for the preservation of the earth? The answer is none. Because as John Gray, the great atheist philosopher, points out, all of those are Christian heresies. All of those are things that are completely tethered to transcendent realities and have no business being in a society that claims to be entirely scientific in the way it concludes its truths. Uh, so I want to call it out as an unsuccessful account uh, of reality. And I also want to say that inside the imminent frame, we don't have a storyless existence. We have a different story. I think the salvation story in the secular frame goes something like this. There is a, there is a true inner me, uh, but that inner me, that true self within me, it got lost. Somehow through forces from outside or forces from inside, the inner me uh, that needs to be expressed can't be expressed. But a, a heroic moment is coming to my life where finally, because I got to university, because I moved out of home, because I changed careers, because I decided not to be a merchant bank there, or to be this sort of whatever. Because of that, I've now discovered who the true me is. And so now things aren't perfect, but I am authentically following the path of my heart and expressing the individual self uh, that I was originally meant to be. That's the salvation story that drives you know, literally every Disney film, literally every Pixar film, literally, that is the story we're told a thousand times. And I don't think it's true. That is, that is the story that also gives us the, the most anxiety of any generation in living history. Because actually, I think you cannot tether a life of meaning and purpose to an entirely imminent existence. <coughs> That's what I want to say to you this afternoon. So I think we've got time for Q&A. Um, but thank you very much for your attention. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Rory. Lots to think about. Um, but before we get into question time, I thought I'd give you guys just a minute. Turn to the person next to you and just introduce yourself if you don't, if you don't know them. Um, but have a chat and share a question that you might have that you want to ask Rory. I'll give you a minute to do that. Thanks.
there's lots of things about there. Yeah, like, it's just like, well, not look into like history and like any, like I don't know any much about history at all. And so, like, to me, if you want to see senior and senior, so you want to see it, it's like, you know, like, All right, we'll bring it back. Awesome. Does anyone have a question to start us off with? Yes, thank you. Uh, so John Gray, British philosopher, just G R A Y, John Gray, um, and he's written a lot on that topic. So he's an atheist himself, and he, uh, the book um, Humans and Other Animals, um, but it's a big part of his his project. It's just to say his basic thing is that um, he thinks that the new atheists like uh, Dawkins and Christians and stuff like that. He thinks they're philosophically very undercooked um, because they're um, they haven't thought through the implications of a genuinely um, secular worldview. And so if you read it, it's a very interesting thing, especially if you're a secular uh, person if you don't identify with any religion. It's really interesting to read because that's what he's trying to do, is try to say, um, this is what our account of the world would look like. Um, so particularly, his big targets are the idea that um, humans are unique. So I think it's just completely religious idea to say that humans have any responsibility for what's happening in the Amazon or any responsibility to, you know, it is completely absurd to go and defend the right of another species to exist, like, you know, extinction and stuff like, why would you even care? And um, completely doesn't believe in progress. So the whole idea, which is relevant, I think, today, the whole idea that uh, that society is heading from A to B to C, that it's it's progressing, that there is such a thing as the wrong side of history, this is, again, just completely uh, Christian heresy. Um, so the Greeks had no interest in progress at all. Uh, Aristotle, uh, Plato says the whole point of life is not to change it but to contemplate it. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a very Christian thing to think progressively and, and he says just with no basis in um, cogent argument. Yeah. And is that because if we're all just, it's all just smart and fittest, it's just let's not impose these narratives yeah, so just says, so for example, he'll say, so John Gray will say, uh, when we say, when someone like uh, Richard Dawkins says, we, we, know, we now know that we are animals, we're the products of a, a blind evolutionary process, um, but we are, not, um, we are not victims of that. John Gray says, who is the we in that sentence? Who, who is the we that has now somehow managed to stand out of its evolutionary thing and talk about itself. He said, no, you're just, you're, there's no we there that can extract itself. If it's true, it's true. And ev literally everything we do is just uh, blind indifference, advancing, well, not even advancing causes, just creating new circumstances. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, I guess talking to people on campus a lot, doing Is that kind of reflected in um, the general world sense, that that's more to the university, you think? 
Uh, I think I think universities uh, on average have higher rates of atheism um, and higher rates of religiosity. So the, I think that the mystery behind that statistic, which is a weird statistic, right? Why are there more atheists and more observant <laughs> Christians, both in that higher education thing? Um, what what seems to be the case is that education gives you agency to change your mind. Okay, and if you go to church in our culture. That's a conscious decision. Almost no one just thinks, oh, here I am on Sunday morning again. Like, um, if you decide to be actively participant in a religious community, you've really decided to do that at, at some cost to yourself against some headwinds going the other way. Also true if you're an atheist. Like, the person says, I have come to the firm conclusion that there is no God. They've definitely thought about it. No one ever thinks, oh, I was raised an atheist, and I kind of stick with it because Dad's really into it, but, um, you know, I'd hate to disappoint Mum and Dad, but I'm secretly, you know, not really... I'm secretly a believer or whatever. Like, no one's a casual atheist. So I think that's why you have, have that thing. And so I think that, you know, universities skew things a bit in those ways. But roughly, I think that would be true that the... Uh, if my story is true and truer than the secularisation story, uh, then most of the people we talk to will have religious beliefs of some sort. Something that's tethered to transcendence, something that is not... Uh, empirically derived, something that reaches outside the imminent frame to make sense of what's in the imminent frame. So that would be a really unsurprising uh, result. And therefore you'd have to think, the person who has that belief, there's something to work with there, but that's not the same as Christian, um, uh, but it, it is to say that there's some transcendence breaking into the imminent thing. Often at points like Charles Taylor would say, uh, beauty, people find it really hard. So if you've seen, if you could Google it afterwards, the, uh, the rainbow, double rainbow in Yosemite National Park. It's an absolutely fantastic film. But this guy, he's got a little um, phone and he's filming this uh, this double rainbow and he just goes increasingly psychotic. He's like, what does it mean? What does it mean? And it's just this kind of <laughs> unbelievable thing. You really must Google that afterwards. And uh, purpose in life, uh, morality, there are all sorts of points where people seem to have to reach outside the transcendent frame and smuggle stuff in, um, which I think that's how I understand that kind of vague religiosity. Unfortunately, I do think we've run out of the time for Sorry. more questions. That's okay. Um, but you will be sticking around for another to 1.30-ish. Yeah. Awesome. So um, please feel free to grab him afterwards and keep chatting. Uh, but before we leave, we do have some feedback forms that are sitting in front of you. Uh, before you fill those out, I might just explain. Um, uh, Christianity Explored. So on uh, your feedback form, it'll have an option if you're interested to check out Christianity Explored. Basically, it is um, six or seven weeks of 45-minute class once a week looking through the Gospel of Mark. Um, so we with a small group of students who um, not necessarily Christian have, or any understanding of Christianity, but just interested to check out who is Jesus, um, what does the Bible have to say about him. Um, yeah, let's try and figure it out together. Um, so if you're interested to check out something like that, it would be really, really awesome to grab your details um, on the feedback form and just, yeah, tick the box um, that's relevant. Also, um, there'll be yeah, a box at the front and at the back as well to just put, pop that in afterwards. Um, so yeah, if you have a chance, can you please do that right now? Thanks.
Sorry guys, um, just before you guys head off, um, there will be outside um, some Gospels of Mark. If you are interested to... Um, sorry guys, just one more thing before you leave. If you are interested to read um, Mark's Gospel for yourself, there will be some free books uh, outside on a table um, just as you leave. So yeah, please feel free to grab that um, and have a read for yourself, um, Who is Jesus? Um, so thanks so much for coming today and uh, engaging with this topic. Please, again, feel free to come and talk to Rory um, now at the front or just outside if there's another lecture coming through. Um, yeah, and I hope to see you at next talks that are coming up. Um, they're, yeah, they're all on Facebook as well. So uh, if you've come to this event, you may have already been invited, um, but search Christian Union UWA and you'll find them there. Really hope to see you. All right, thanks, guys. Bye.